Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore, my boy. Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. Hal, open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. And on Wednesdays, we open, open the Dumbledore. The Dumbledore. Open, Dumbledore. The Dumbledore. Open, the Dumbledore. open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. Open the Dumbledore. episode 272 of Alohomora for May 25th, 2019. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Alohomora, MuggleNet.com's in-depth exploration of the Harry Potter series. I'm Allison Sigurd. And I'm Michael Harley, and uh, with us today, we have a very special guest who you listeners will probably recognize the voice of. It's Caleb Graves. Hey, guys. Yay! Welcome back, Caleb. <laughs> it's so, so good to be back. Yeah. Caleb, you've been gone for a while from Alohomora. Tell us about what you've been up to since you've been gone. Wow. Um, I was trying to think, actually, as we were like sitting here getting ready to start, when I actually hopped off. And I honestly can't remember. I don't know if you guys, do you guys remember off the top of your head when we actually finished the reread? Yeah. Oh. So that was. Yeah, I don't know. Nice. That would take some like typing and web like searching. But um, so I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's been like a few years. I've I finished law school. I have moved back to Texas. Um, I live in Dallas now where I work as a lawyer and yeah, it's, it's, it's been a minute since I've been doing this. <laughs> That's great. Cause I know when you left, you were just like, I'm pursuing my lawyer dreams. And yeah, so, yeah. and look at that. You did it. it is, yeah. It's, it's done and lawyer things are happening now on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so exciting, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you left around. If you left around the end of Deathly Hallows, then you left around 2016. So, okay. so I was yeah. yeah. So I was still in law school when I when we finished when I hopped off. I remember mm-hmm. being in law school. Um, yeah. So yeah. So it's it hasn't been. I guess wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's been three years, but it's been like yeah. two years since I've been in law school. I guess that's what it is. It's been longer that I've that I remember that I was in law school. Um, yeah. Well, and uh, before the we were started recording, listeners, we were kind of we the three of us were kind of catching up on um, Harry Potter news and everything. And Caleb, what do you what do you think in general about about the state of Harry Potter right now? Because the the things with the franchise, which is really now the excuse me the Wizarding World franchise, has has uh, kind of evolved a lot since since you were last on the show. Yeah. Things are super great. I'm really confident about the direction everything is going uh, week in, week out. <laughs> uh, no. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm not – I've – as far as like – I guess like the Fantastic Beasts movies are like the big blockbuster items that have happened since I left. I mm. like am okay with them generally. Um, I kind of have like separated them from Harry Potter um, <laughs> and just found them as like different stories that are loosely tied to the things that I grew up with and cherished and, <laughs> you know, hold so importantly. But um, yeah, 
this, I don't follow it. We were talking briefly about, you know, everything with the wizarding world, like online sphere. And I don't follow it as closely um, as I used to. Because, man, I can remember when Pottermore first opened and like being online with a friend trying to get in with that first group of like beta users yeah. or whatever it was. <laughs> yep. And it's crazy how it's all shifting so quickly now. And it's sad to see so many things be monetized. Um, because even, I don't mean to get on a tangent here, but it's kind of funny to still hear friends who are not as like, you know, deeply nerdy about Harry Potter as we are, but still like enjoy it kind of casually talk about, oh, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Hufflepuff because of that, the, the website quiz, the Pottermore quiz. It's kind of funny how many people who aren't very intense fans still have, um, that connection with Pottermore and to see them kind of shift it to like a monetized um, front. It's kind of sad for me. Yeah. Yeah. Things have definitely changed in a, in a very different direction. I think from, it's kind of amazing thinking of like how different it was just from three years ago. Yeah. Um, but how, and how long has it, it, cause we're of course listeners will tell you in just a moment here. And you can probably guess what we're about to do based on the previous episodes. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, how long has it been since you've kind of revisited Potter proper? Um, Like actually reread the books? Yeah. It's probably, I don't know if I've done a full reread since I was on the show. I, I, I oh, kind of wow. do this thing where I just like will read casually um, like some of the books, if I'm like in between books, um, and like pick it up here and there, but I don't think I've done really a full reread since I've been off the show. Mm. So yeah, it's been a minute. So it's been fun listening to the episodes. Um, I mean, like when the first, when you guys, um, picked it up with Sorcerer's Stone and doing the reread, it's been fun to kind of listen to it again because the first time we did the show, when we reread, um, it was obviously there was a lot to dig into to this like first time really digging deep into rereading each chapter, but then doing it like the second, second time was as a listener was also very interesting to hear. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, and even it's when fair. I, sorry to interrupt, but like, even no, just yeah. like rereading Deathly Hallows chapter one for the, oh, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't get ahead of myself, but rereading, for, <laughs> like, I guess the listeners know, uh, but rereading it just last night to get ready for this episode, I'm like, wow, there's like still things I can read that, uh, I didn't pay attention to that much the first or second time. So it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, and you you can't be blamed for you know not revisiting the series. And you've been very busy. You've been adulting pretty hard. So that's that's okay. Um, and that's you know what makes revisiting Harry Potter kind of in your later years so so refreshing. I think when we get to do things like this now. Um, Definitely. Because, yes, listeners. This is a chapter revisit episode, and we are examining Deathly Hallows chapter one, the Dark Lord ascending. So definitely make sure and reread that chapter before listening. Um, because this, uh, the reason we're doing this particular chapter is this is the finale of our seven year anniversary episodes where we've been revisiting the first chapter of each of the Harry Potter books. This is the culmination of that. So yeah, make sure to, uh, read that. And also if you want to, you know, go above and beyond head back to uh, the uh, Deathly Hallows episode for chapter, the original Alohomora episode for Deathly Hallows chapter one and take a listen. 
And before we jump into this chapter, we just want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Deanna Brash on Patreon. And Deanna is one of our lovely transcribers. So double claps for Deanna. Yay, thank you, Deanna. Yay. (laughs) And you listeners can become a sponsor for as little as $1 a month. And bonus... We've decreased the cost of our Lohmora t-shirt tier to $10, which includes free shipping within the U.S. So sign up now, get one of those super sweet t-shirts quick before they're all gone, because I bet those are going to go super fast, yeah. because those shirts are awesome. <laughs> and there are all sorts of other awesome rewards and exclusive tidbits on our Patreon, so go to patreon.com slash alohomora to find out more. And before we head into our episode today, we also wanted to thank our episode sponsor, Away Luggage. Uh, If you listeners have not heard of Away Luggage before, uh, they have really uh, great uh, suitcases. I've I've actually used Away Luggage um, for myself and my parents for the last time we went to Universal Studios uh, for my birthday in March because my my parents haven't hadn't traveled by plane for a really long time, and I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, things have changed so much, and you need good luggage for the for the airport because they 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 still had like you know the old suitcases that have just like the two wheels on the back, and you always have to tip them, and it's like you can't get through an airport with those anymore. So I and um, my roommate Jara had bought away luggage first, and I really like loved the look of them. There, the neat thing about away luggage is that they actually have different, mul- like multiple different sizes: the carry on, the bigger carry on, the medium, or the large. So you can get different types, and they come in like all these really pretty colors. My dad saw the blue and really wanted that one, and then he was considering giving another one. Once he used the second one, um, he was going to give it to my brother, Charlie. Um, and Charlie loves red, and they had a beautiful red color that he got. So, uh, yeah, we got some really nice luggage with that. And they even have, um, like, the some, some of the away luggage has that uh, you just tap it, and you've got a portable charger that you can remove out of there, with his, which is really nice. Uh, so that was really also very useful because my phone kept dying at Universal Studios because <laughs> their app sucked the battery out of my phone. So because I had that little portable charger for my phone from the suitcase, I was able to keep my phone alive, uh, which was especially important because my parents had never been to Universal Studios and I had to guide them all, all around the park. Uh, so there's a lot of really great uses that come from such great suitcases. And you listeners have a chance to get $20 off a suitcase by visiting awaytravel.com slash albus and use promo code albus during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash albus, A-L-B-U-S. And use promo code albus, A-L-B-U-S, during checkout. And one last quick thing is our lovely shout-out Maximas this week from our Order of the Phoenix episode, which was an awesome episode. Um, I was not on it, but I had a fun time listening to it. And all of you listeners left some absolutely fantastic comments. So we're going to go through some of uh, the ones that really stood out to us real quick. And then you can head over to the website and read them. So we start with So... (laughs) Who... Had a comment about how wands were uh, a representation of knife crime, actually. Yeah, that was a really Which, great comment because we, yeah. we kind of like started that discussion on the show, but so kind of took it to the place of like using other, 
other examples of like extreme like magic in the wizarding world and like thinking about like if you did this with a knife with that that wouldn't be okay so why does it make it okay to do it with the one she like specifically cited when what hermione does to marietta edgecombe with the oh gosh yeah she was just like think about that like think I about that part think about if you're like you because uh, mainly because we had that discussion about in the in the book about how harry kind of uses his his wand against dudley um, and the and Dudley's gang and the representations of that as well. Our next comment comes from Griffin Prefect, who talks about uh, taking the caps lock Harry <laughs> discussion <laughs> and uh, referring listeners to actually Mucklenet's newest podcast, Beyond the Veil, which is a lovely show, and you should all listen to it. Um, it's a it's a show that very much focuses on how Harry Potter has affected our lives and things like mental health in the real world. Um, and so it's a really great one to look at. Our next comment comes from Glitzy Gryffindor. Ooh, that's a new one. <laughs> yeah, there's a few new nicknames this this week that were really good. That's a fun one. That is. That one's awesome. <laughs> um, and they, they had a reflection on what they called the, quote, could have or couldn't have discussion about Harry jinxing Dudley. Um, we're on the episode they talked about, okay, would Harry have really done something to Dudley? Would he have not um, in that moment uh, before the Dementors show up? Yeah, it's kind of I I I love when we do we don't we don't do this as much as we used to because we even had that as a I think like a segment back. Caleb will remember this like way back in the day when there would, there was like a what if segment mm-hmm. that we yeah. would do where we'd like present like a what if this happened in the in the chapter and so it's it's fun bringing those back into the discussion because I do think they pull out some interesting thoughts about like about character motivations in the chapters. And we our other shout out Maximas go to Arthur Dent, Blood Charm, The Desk Pigwidgeon. Oh, that's a new one too. That's cute. <laughs> um, Diskid, HP Boy 13, The Gen is Mightier. That one's cute too. Um, Ravenpuff, That Time Remus Wadawazi and Raxbert's Got Me. <laughs> I will say how enjoyable it is to like re get to be a part of hearing these screen names again. Some of them <laughs> that are familiar to me and others that are new. Uh, the, I will, I do think this podcast has the strongest, um, listener handles on the web like i think i can like safely say <laughs> that yeah. the game and is you guys really just strong keep, like stepping up your game yeah. yeah you just keep stepping it up Mad i swear respect every out time there to to these clever handles uh the pun game is strong with these ones <laughs> <laughs> three turns should do it chapter revisit Chapter One The Dark Lord Ascending Snape and fellow Death Eater Yaxley arrive at Malfoy Manor, each with the hope that their news on the plans to move Harry Potter out of Privet Drive will please Lord Voldemort. Planning to ensure that this time he will not fail... Voldemort relieves Lucius Malfoy of his wand, using it first to kill Hogwarts Muggle Studies professor Charity Burbage. That's pretty much all that happens in this chapter. (laughs) Yeah, when you put it like that, too, this... Oh, man, I forgot how 
there's a lot about this chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot tucked in here, but it, it is I, like I was it was funny when I opened it and I was just like, "Oh, this is like 11 pages. That's really quick." Um this is a this is a short opening chapter, but it's very full. Feels very full. Yeah. But when you just summarize like the action like that, it's just like, "Oh, Wow. That's it. Um, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very atmospheric chapter, mm. I feel like, more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we jump into it, let's go back a couple pages because I think this one, the, the dedication and the beginning of this one, I think warrants some special analysis. Um, as you probably know, listeners, uh, this book has a special dedication. Um, and it's even written in a cool way. Uh, the dedication of this book is split seven ways to Neil, to Jessica, to David, to Kenzie, to die, to Anne, and to you. If you have stuck with Harry until the very end and it's in the lightning shape or the lightning bolt design, which is still just nice. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time I like got this book and got to this page and I couldn't decide if I wanted to spend like, 30 minutes soaking this up or just like immediately <laughs> jump into reading because I was so anxious, but it was just like so substantial and perfect. And it's just, it's so beautiful and heartfelt and it's just, it's a reminder of what kind of like the relationship used to be between like creators of things and the fandom, you know, where we had that more, where it didn't feel like, franchises were trying to suck us dry um, <laughs> <laughs> where it felt more appreciative still um oh yeah this is it's a part of that being the time when it was just kind of rolling speaking more directly to her to her readers and um like that's kind of, it, i think it we're even feeling kind of even more distant from that now because like <laughs> we were joking caleb said uh earlier that she said she's been she's locked away somewhere writing the third fantastic beast <laughs> script and it, it, it like we don't even hear her we don't even hear her on twitter anymore like no i think eric has a count of how many days she's been inactive <laughs> or something God. like of course he does and last time last time it was updated it was like 65 or something and that was a while ago so it's like oh <laughs> yeah like we just we don't have that we've we've really lost a lot of that and I'm you know it's obviously there's there's a lot that you could say about Rowling and her Twitter and who's like really in control of that and now and these days and whatnot but especially in, when it comes to what she posts about Harry Potter um, but yeah yeah it is a I think I I, f- I feel that way actually about the the original seven books even like I'm stronger with that every year that these are really you know, if you're looking for the just genuine tie to what Harry Potter was always meant to be, like you go, you go back to the original yeah. books to find that feeling. They'll, they'll uh, at least they'll still always be there. Yeah. yeah, it has been nice. I've been rereading. I'm like halfway through Order of the Phoenix mm, right now, mm, mm-hmm. um, and also reading this chapter, and it's just like, oh yeah. This is where it all started. This is why we love it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why we're still here, um, despite everything. <laughs> well, and ev- everything in the beginning of this book too is really does a good. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically to the U the U.S. edition, 
um, because the the UK edition has some you know slightly different things. But like we had we had the that we and we talked about that on the original episode. But we have the fantastic um, you know end paper that just says we now present the seventh oh and final installment in the epic tale of Harry Potter, which is funny because the UK got this like really long, silly summary about like Harry Potter's at yeah. Privet Drive and he's waiting to go. And like, that's, it's like a summary of like the first, like the like, chapter three, just to, because it's like, we, I think we even posited like that. Maybe that was the one that the, the people at Bloomsbury were allowed to read and then they weren't allowed to read anymore. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it, the, the scholastic always did such a good job of just like they, the Harry Potter book camp marketing campaign was phenomenally done. Fantastic. Yeah. In the U S I remember, I remember getting this one for the first time and I remember reading that inside cover and just being like, Okay. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Okay. You know, just like trying to. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then as you have here, Allison, then we get the the epigraphs. Yeah. Which I don't know if anyone else this kind of threw them off at the beginning, right? You read the dedication, you're like, oh, that's cute. Okay, let's go. And then you're like, wait, <laughs> what is this, right? And the, these epigraphs, uh, one of them is from. I have my book right in front of me because I didn't write it down. Um, one of them is from the Libation Bears. Mm-hmm. That is like, holy cow, like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, just a lot. But I think that the most powerful part is the end, right? Bless the children, give them triumph now. Mm. The whole thing kind of connects. But that one, I think, was the line that really jumps out to me every time of they're 17, And um, they're still kids, technically. Um, And then we have a little one from William Penn, More Fruits of Solitude. And it's about death. Mm. (laughs) And I remember reading this and going, she's going to kill everyone. (laughs) (laughs) No one's safe. And having, I think, probably my first... I don't know if this was anyone else's like first fandom thing where you were like, it's the end and people are going to die, mm. um, <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like is common now. I feel like at the end or the supposed end of everything, someone there's always so-and-so is going to die. Who's going to die? Everyone's going to die. You know, that's kind of like the thing. I feel like that marks an end almost now. Well, yeah, in kind of the, like the funny thing about that is that it's that's actually I think like kind of the continued pop culture tradition of that actually the most well known source for that is actually soap operas, um, yeah, and that like that that high drama that you just know at the end of a season you know somebody big is gonna gonna die and uh, that soap operas are actually sometimes also the reason why we have a mentality that people who die are gonna come back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then you know you, you you do apply that to something like Harry Potter where you know that was i think a little unusual for juvenile fiction at on such a grand scale like this at the time that was so wholly embraced not to say there weren't series that weren't doing this cuz there were already at that time but Harry Potter was the one that had just captivated so many people into, you know, being, cause I think there were 
because uh, I, I talked about this on the Deathly Hallows original episodes too, but Scholastic released these seven little bookmarks that you could print from their yeah. website. And one of the, they each had a question on them. And mm-hmm. one of them was who will live and who will die. Um, mm-hmm. So it was on, yeah, it was on everybody's mind. Um, and yeah, I remember when, cause I, I read Deathly Hallows aloud. I read the first few chapters aloud to my friends the night we got the book and we were all taken aback by these uh, poems and excerpts because that's not something that had ever been done in Harry Potter before. And I had learned how to break – like I actually had a unit in high school where I, had, where I had learned to break down poetry line by line before. But my mm-hmm. me and my friends just weren't interested in doing that at the time because, you know, like you said, Allison, it was like, can we just get to the story, please? Let's get to the story. Um, and <laughs> – these two particular poems, I think, especially for the intended reading level, aren't necessarily poems that you may that all readers may understand right away what they mean. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 I think that some in some ways their meanings become more clear and evident when you have already read Deathly Hallows. Um, yeah, as far as how they apply, and you can and and the beautiful thing, of course, too, about poetry is that you can you can pull out multiple readings of of what these two poems might actually mean in terms of the story like i and listeners i don't know if you you remember this but i read out these two poems for the original deathly hallows episodes and mm-hmm. my interpretation of them for those episodes was i read for the the excerpt from fruits of solitude for part for the for the first chapter uh exploration and i read that kind of as Harry, Ron, and Hermione kind of reflecting on that their friendship will get them through. And that's what, like, makes that, like, because that's, that's my favorite line is this is the comfort of friends, that though they may be said to die, yet their friendship and society are in the best sense ever present because immortal. So that while death, you know, stalks the earth and is like a constant, human connection makes living um, worthwhile, so there's like there's love and connection is what makes life worth worth it, even though the inevitability of death is around the corner. Um, and then I read the libation bearers. The way I chose to read it was actually as Harry, Ron and Hermione as adults reflecting on what they had gone through. And when they said, bless the children, give them triumph now. Well, I do think that it like in many ways that line is meant to represent the children who have been put into a situation of war mm. in Harry Potter. I also really liked the idea of that kind of being Harry, Ron and Hermione's words to their children, that they hope that their children um, have good lives. And because of what they went through, their children can now be blessed. Um, so you can, like I said, you can pull out a lot of different meanings of that. I'm sure I would, what I'd love to hear too is, you know, in the comments, listeners, you know, let let us know what you pulled out of these poems and how they apply to Harry Potter, because I'm sure you all have interpretations that we've never even thought of before. Yeah, <laughs> I just they're so I don't know. They just set the tone for everything that's going to happen, I think, in a way that none of the other books have had something to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we jump in um, and. 
<laughs> not to put off the action for a little bit more, but I've said this before. I think I talk about this every single time we read Deathly Hallows. The writing in this book is just exquisite. Oh, I love it so much. Um, I think like it's some of her very, very best writing is in this book, just style wise. Um, I mean, this, this, it starts. And I think sometimes we forget this because the movie, especially the music to the movie, is a little bit more like fast paced and kind of um, exciting, um, if that makes sense. But th- this book starts very quiet. It's just Yaxley and Snape meeting in front of Malfoy Manor and it's at night. And I think she just sets the perfect tone of this quietness with almost the sense of dread that just starts feeding into it. The thing that always takes me aback by this chapter and I realize you, you just get it right away is that this is the one book I think in the Harry Potter series where Rowling was just like, if you haven't read the other books, screw you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you this is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Put this down and go read Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, this this is this is the one intro chapter where there's just nothing given to the. the nope. I mean, it's. I'd say the only like the closest like sisters it has in the series are Goblet of Fire and Half-Blood Prince, but even more so I think Goblet of Fire. Um, yeah. Because that, you know, that we, that's also a chapter that where we get Voldemort at, in the beginning rather than Harry and, and really more from his, his group's perspective. Even in the other chapters that we've had that start out that aren't from Harry's perspective, they've been from an outsider perspective. Mm. Um, most of them are from like a muggle point of view or something like yeah. that. So that we're still somewhat removed from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this one, for the first time, we jump right into the middle of the exact opposite point of view. Mm. I yeah, mean, you walk right into the dark side's camp as members of that dark side are walking in themselves. It's pretty. It's a pretty yeah. unique entry. Yeah, and it's. I think it's a little like disorienting in a, in a way, you know, because we don't even have that one step removed of this guy is evil. You know, it's like no, you're you're in the middle right here, and the Death Eaters are making plans, and they're making plans about killing Harry and. Uh, we don't know if Harry knows this, you know? So we're like, we're going to get to Harry's point of view and whatever they're discussing here is going to happen. And what, how do we get out of this? You know, it, it really sets up that, that tone of there's a lot more going on on the other side than we thought there was, I think. And this is serious. Like this is a full on war, you know? Um, well, that that's that's too what you said, Allison, about how we are given this information that um, about what the Death Eaters' plans are to go after Harry. This this is, and I've talked about this multiple times, listeners. So forgive me for citing this example again. But um, this is this is the Hitchcock approach to a mystery, mm. uh, which is as his example, his famous example is, um, you know, there's a there's a dinner party and with all these characters and then the 
you know, the, the camera pans down and there's a bomb under the table. If the, you could do it, you know, multiple ways and to, to convey that message to the audience, or you could choose not to convey that message. And Hitchcock doesn't like that idea. Like he talks about like you, the writer know there's a bomb at the table, but the audience doesn't know that. And then all of a sudden it just, the, the room blows up. And what was the fun in that? Because the audience didn't even have a chance. But if you use the camera to pan down and show them the bomb on the table and you maybe see like, you know, the seconds ticking away and see what the people are doing during that dinner to kind of, you increase the audience's tension for what's going to happen to these people. And this is that because Rowling has planted the bomb for the audience to see um, for that first, you know, encounter that Voldemort and Harry are going to have. She's told us. And this is a rare thing where she lets us know this in this way from the the other guy's perspective. But she's given us that information where she's like, okay, the bomb is that the the Death Eaters know when Harry's going to be moved. And so how is and, – and we are also given information of how the – kind of some vague information about how the Order is going to do it. So what's going to be exciting and suspenseful – and nail biting for us as the readers as we go along is listening to the order of the Phoenix detail their plans to Harry and to us, the reader, because we know that the plan is going to have a, have a flaw, so to speak. Um, there's always a flaw in the plan in Harry Potter, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, this is a good, that's a great way to, to set the excitement for, for this is by, she sets up a little kind of mini mystery just from the get go. This is interesting too, I think, because, uh, Caleb, you can probably speak more to this since I don't watch this show, but I've been <laughs> reading some things about how people are so upset about Game of Thrones right now. Um, I don't watch it, but it's entertaining to see everyone's reactions. Um, and a lot of people, I've seen some articles that they've been talking about uh, how the problem with that show is it isn't doing things like this. It's not showing you setup to these things they're doing. And a lot of people have been talking about, well, that's the way that people draw audiences now in now is with shock factor. So they're not going to show you that something's going to happen and leave you waiting there for it. Um, like waiting for the inevitable that you know is going to happen for that, that dramatic irony, but instead they're just going to throw something big and shocking out because that's what gets people talking. Right. Well, so to like not get too much on a Game of Thrones tangent, but <laughs> so I think like there's like a separate thing, right? Because Game of Thrones was always um, a big element was always about like anything could go devastatingly wrong at any point of time. Um, that was kind of like the one of the big appeals of Game of Thrones. People who read it or watch it are familiar with the Red Wedding, right? And that's like the ultimate shock moment of the series, um, except for maybe um, when a main character dies toward the very beginning of the series. Um, but and th there's a reason why people are not upset in a narrative sense about those items but they are upset about what's happening right now toward the end of the show because there was never it's at the end. It's so significant. And this story is closing and any choice you make is a choice, you know, that people will have different feelings about, but people who understand or appreciate narrative arcs will be okay with that choice in a larger sense because 
it's been built toward that end in some way, or it, 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 there's at least some sense behind it. And it's similar to what's happening here in Deathly Hallows. Um, there are ways of making these narrative choices, like Michael talks about this Hitchcock approach of the, planting the bomb. That's one way of doing it. Um, but with with Deathly Hallows, everything you feel complete about the way it's being told, even if you don't like individual moments or individual things that happen to certain characters along the way, you feel like it's happening in a very natural, reasonable, um, explainable way, justifiable way. Whereas in Game of Thrones, it feels very haphazard and off the cuff and things like that. So, it, I mean, for me at least, especially reading this right now as Game of Thrones is about to finish, it makes me appreciate just how much thought and process Rowling put into everything she did to get through these, even these last moments. Well, and that's, I think that's what you were saying too, Caleb, but that's a big element of what makes Harry Potter, what made Harry Potter so enjoyable and what's, you know, maybe it, an issue that that Game of Thrones is encountering is that if you, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of split opinions on, like, what, who, who, who a piece of artistic work belongs to. Does it purely belong to the author or is there an element of where it belongs somewhat to the audience? And I think Rowling did a, actually a really good job of balancing that act um, more than people sometimes think about because she made Harry Potter guessable. Um, she made Harry Potter, like she made it a really good mystery, but she did put in clues so that when the final solutions came around in Hallows, some people could feel the satisfaction of being like, I got that. Um, there was a participatory nature to it and nothing, I don't think anything really ever happened within the series that people felt was a huge betrayal of how the characters should behave because she had so brilliantly set up like, and broke down her characters as she went through the seven novels and she took them from being black and white characters to really gray characters, almost all of them. So there was always room for them to do those, to some of the things they do. And of course, there's currently debate on one particularly major character on Game of Thrones and whether that character, character's actions in recent episodes were really built up or not. Um, and whether that was just kind of a, a fancy of the writers that was badly done or if there are actually subtle hints. Um, and there's a, there's kind of a big split in the game of Thrones fandom right now on which, which it was. Um, so I, and, and that, that I think that contributes a lot to why an audience can feel cheated about the direction a story takes and why most people in general, I think were actually pretty happy with how deathly hallows wrapped its story. Yeah. But speaking of characters, uh, the very first name we get is a character that, uh, I think when I was reading it, at least the very first time, I was like, oh, really? We're starting here? Um, but the first name we actually get in this book is Severus Snape. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I love this name. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, after Half-Blood Prince, if you read that and your blood wasn't boiling, I mean... Who even are you? Um, <laughs> I was, I was like, I was that kid who did not learned enough about the morally gray stuff from Rolling and wasn't paying attention <laughs> enough because I was just like Snape, he just sucks. I hate him so much. Yep. 
So, <laughs> but I mean, it is brilliant that she starts with with Snape because there's a lot about. I wouldn't say this is as much his story as it is Harry's, but he is a major player in everything that's about to happen and how it's about to go down, and he's going to make a huge sacrifice in the chess game mm-hmm. for that. And I think that's. I think it's great that she she makes him the first identifiable character. And she's given, again, Yeah, she's given us enough clues about how Snape behaves in these situations that, you know, if you're an astute reader, you'll know what's really going on. Well, it's interesting because if you're reading it for the first time, you're already predisposed to be really angry and upset about Snape mm-hmm. after Half-Blood Prince. Mm-hmm. And you're already predisposed, I think, from the end of Half-Blood Prince to be like, oh, yeah, Snape is a total villain. You know, Snape is here. He's got it out for Harry. He's got it out for the Order. He's terrible. He's completely on Voldemort's side. But when you reread it and you know what he's really doing in this chapter and you know from the Prince's Tale what he did before this, where he planted the idea of the Seven Potters but kept that from both, you know, where he, we get more of the background of what's going on here mm-hmm. in uh, The Prince's Tale. And it's it's just fascinating that she chooses to really make sure she's dropping that in there and kind of playing with what you already know about the character, because that adds more tension mm-hmm. to this whole chapter. Like, if Snape knows what's happening, everyone's dead, right? <laughs> And if we, like, it's interesting because we are, like you guys said before, we, we're in a different, a wholly different perspective here, and it's through the villains of the story, but it is interesting to kind of walk into this situation because I think the person who we're close, most closely in the perspective of is Snape throughout the chapter, um, but because because mm-hmm. the narration even favors Snape in terms of what happens with the information that he imparts to Voldemort. Um, it's clear that Snape is, you know, the favorite and that Snape is in control of the conversation. Um, even when him and the Axley are walking up to Malfoy Manor, um, Snape, Snape's, Snape's confidence, I think because we're used to Snape's confidence and we don't know Yaxley, we know that Snape is probably, again, in control of this situation more so than Yaxley is. Um, so we're generally in Snape's perspective, but Rowling does have to pull it back and withhold from us some information even about being in Snape's perspective because she can't give things away about him. So it's she's doing a really um, a really great balancing act by choosing to do this through Snape's eyes, but also making sure that we don't we're not completely in his head like we usually are with like Harry. Speaking of uh, you brought up Yaxley, I don't think we've heard of him before this point. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Did I just forget? I'm pretty sure that's correct. I think this is Yaxley's very first mention in this series. So Voldemort has been recruiting, which is interesting, I think. And again, helps build to that tone that we're like, oh, man, there's there's more Death Eaters even. Well, I think um, he was. I don't know if he was new, right? I mean, I think he was an existing Death Eater. He just wasn't brought up yet. Yaxley, well, yeah, Yaxley might be one of those people who was a Death Eater back in the day and then just integrated back into society because he's we mm-hmm. he works for the Ministry. That's he works for the Ministry, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's possible too that there are some people like agents in the Ministry who weren't Death Eaters before who were brought over based on 
you know, their behavior within the ministry. Um, cause that's a big mm. thing. Am I thinking right with, um, Runcorn, the guy who Harry impersonates, um, Yes, I don't think he's a full Death Eater. No, but he's like, like he's he's particularly cruel, and it's yeah, he's like sympathetic to them. Yeah, so uh, it's like there's, um, yeah, there's 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 certain people within the ministry I think who are like sympathetic to the Death Eaters, and so they know who they can they can turn or who they can get into the fold. But I think death the thing to, eater adjacent. <laughs> yes. I think the thing to keep in mind with the death, the, like the, the thing that the movies kind of uh, play with a little and kind of confuse us on is that like the inner circle of death eaters is smaller and that yeah. Voldemort's followers and his death eaters are not necessarily exactly the same thing. So like the death, the death eaters are like the real, inner circle that, you know, goes to his, goes to Malfoy Manor and goes to these meetings and um, are carrying out larger missions, whereas his followers probably don't have all of this information, but are led in on certain things, especially when the ministry falls and are sympathetic to Voldemort's cause and are rallied to fight for him. Um, but, you know, it's like they're not going to meetings or anything like that. So... Um, but speaking of, uh, Death Eaters that have been here for a while, we get our first look at Malfoy Manor and we also get kind of the sense that the other Death Eaters have some contempt for the Malfoys. Hmm. Um, at least that's what I get from Yaxley where they're like, oh, it's the Malfoys, you know, (laughs) um, just the comment about the white peacock and everything. And I think. I don't the know. The thing about the Malfoys is that not only did they integrate back into society, but they also made out like bandits. Like yeah. they're they've they've maintained their wealth and they've they've they they and I mean it's it's perfect, right? It's perfect that it's a white peacock that's strutting around <laughs> like they're everything about the Malfoys is kind of associated with peacocking like they just flaunt themselves and their wealth and their status um and like the, yeah the, i think that's why the death eaters would have especially the death eaters who went to to jail <laughs> um for for Voldemort yeah. cuz i think there's also a schism between the death eaters who escaped and you know got back into society and the death eaters who went to Azkaban like there's probably a distinct split of feelings there because we know from Goblet of Fire um, about, you know, Crouch Jr. and Bellatrix, how, how much pride they took in going to, in going to jail for Voldemort um, mm-hmm. and how some of those Death Eaters think it cowardly that the others just kind of were like, oh, no, we were being controlled. Like, it was our minds. It wasn't us. So, and weaseling out of things. And I think especially because, and I think Rowling mentions this on <laughs> Old Pottermore. Um, I think <laughs> in the piece about the Malfoys, there is kind of this discussion about how Lucius was being so slippery and almost careless with the things he was trying to do in relation to Voldemort throughout the years. Speaking of uh, Death Eaters that uh, went to Azkaban for <laughs> Voldemort, we get this 
interesting description of Bellatrix. Oh, before we go in, I'm just going to throw it out there. Before we go into that, Caleb, did you get to see Cursed Child? I did. I've seen it twice. I saw it in London um, with the second cast, and I saw it on Broadway with the original cast. Okay. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is one of the lines that leads me to one of my major theories about Delphi Mm -hmm. um, and how Delphi came about, because we have a couple sentences like this in this chapter. Um, And the first one is Bellatrix. She's described as like leaning across the table, basically. Um, And the description is, we would describe it today as being thirsty. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Very thirsty. For mere words could not demonstrate her longing for closeness. And this is where I get one of my major theories, because what else happens in this chapter is Voldemort makes fun of all of the Malfoys and of Bellatrix in this entire chapter. Mm. And he, they've obviously kind of fallen from grace with Mm. him. And it maybe Bellatrix, not quite so much, but by association she has. And so that's one of my major theories still is that Delphi is a punishment disguised as a reward. And I'm just going to leave it there because I've talked about that a lot. (laughs) I guess like the thing that I like, I always counterpoint at least Delphi with for me is that she just, because she doesn't really, because that like how that factors into like Horcruxes and Voldemort's like, you know, does Voldemort need to create a legacy by having a child when he himself, his whole plan is that he's going to live forever. It like, that's, that's where the contention comes for me about why Delphi was part of this plan. Like it, I think, that's why Delphi works post Deathly Hallows and Cursed Child because we know that Bellatrix is obsessed with Voldemort. Um, but I almost always saw it that Voldemort, because he has no capacity to love, um, uses Bellatrix in that way because he just sees he's kind of like kind of holding a, the carrot on the string in front of her, but he's never actually going mm-hmm. to you know he's never going to give her what she wants in that way. Um, because it just keeps her motivated to keep doing what, because she's so crazy that you don't necessarily even have to give it to her. Um, you can just keep baiting her with it. Um, so I, yeah, that's, that's, I, I feel like that one's still like open to interpretation enough that you could take that in that direction for Cursed Child, which Cursed Child just went ahead and did. Um, or, if you don't want to take it in that direction, I feel you like still that's a tagline for Cursed Child. We just went ahead and did <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Okay, uh, yeah, we did that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it leaves the possibility open. No, I just mean lar- I like it largely it like the choices in Cursed Child just script the, from beginning to end. Like a theme is, yeah, we just did that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 an interesting one. Like, I don't, I still don't get the sense that that's like something that was like in Rowling's head as she was writing. Like, honestly, if she did say like, "Yeah, I thought that the whole time I was writing Deathly Hallows," I'd be like, "Yeah, sure." And you also thought Nagini was a woman twenty years ago. Nice try. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. just <laughs> nice try. Um, those are the, some of the things that I personally just can't buy because I'm not. I'm just not seeing enough textual evidence. But I think on that front, Allison, you're, you've got a fair argument that you like, it's open. It's open for interpretation. You could, you could fit it in the, the fan fiction can run wild (laughs) with with that one. 
So. Just saying, <laughs> there's space for it. Yeah. There's yeah. space for it, so... <laughs> the A character I wanted to note who's at the table, another longtime Death Eater, who... I just it's interesting about how he's dealt with is Pettigrew, um, because he's been completely reduced to pretty much a non-speaking appearance in this book. Um, he I don't really even remember him saying much anything of value. Like I think the only time, correct me if I'm wrong. I think the only time he speaks is when he approaches the dungeon to pull people out of it during the yeah. Malfoy Manor chapters. I think but that's he's right. Not, Mm-hmm. But he doesn't say anything substantial. He's just like, stand back or come with me or, you know, he doesn't say anything interesting. And then he dies. Um, and I thought that was really in- an interesting choice on Rowling's part because Pettigrew had been really built up about what's going to happen with this guy because of the silver ar- the silver hand, which she notes um, by saying that he leaves behind a trail like a wisp of silver as he, as he goes. Um, mm-hmm. But... I, I just find it interesting that this character that we we were all keeping a close eye on, he's gets a pretty unceremonious exit, all things considered. Well, he's kind of become a non-entity. Yeah. You know? Like, it's almost like she's saying, all right, he was so important when he was connected to, like, the rest of the Marauders, and the rest of the Marauders at this point are still pretty important. I mean, they're important in Harry's story. They all show up at the end. Except for Peter, because he made bad choices, mm. basically. He he chose he chose poorly. <laughs> He's become a non-entity because of it. Yeah. And he thought he would have all this glory because he went and found Voldemort and he helped bring him back. And, you know, he was the servant that, like, sacrificed for that. And he's just been thrown aside because... He couldn't see what Voldemort really was and what he was really wanting and what he was really doing. And I think it's kind of an interesting arc. And I think it's a kind of true to life arc of, okay, these people that are like this are going to just throw you aside once you've been used. Whereas I think we've gotten enough kind of idea that had Pettigrew maybe really been repentant, Harry to some extent might have forgiven him. Remus to some extent, might have forgiven him. Sirius, maybe not, because Sirius had other issues with Pettigrew. Um, but I think there would have been some closure for all of them had he made the better choice. And he didn't. And so instead, he just gets pushed aside and he just dies. He just dies. Yeah. I, yeah, it works. It, it, I think it was just uh, like it was a bold and good choice on Rowling's part because it subverted audience expectations a little bit with Pettigrew because I think people were waiting to see what part he was going to play. And he does indeed play a part. Um, I just don't think it really went the way that everybody was expecting it to go. And I think it's extra surprising because he is so quiet throughout that. But I do think your, you know, your reasoning behind it is totally exactly on the mark, Allison. It's like the, 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 his, it's a great, Example of, you know, Pettigrew next to Bellatrix is one of Voldemort's most loyal followers, and look what it got him. Like, this is mm-hmm. not a reward. <laughs> it's a, like the people who have, we're seeing a lot of people, you know, the people who are closest to Voldemort, not like this is the life they chose, and it's not terribly rewarding for what they've received. <laughs> so it sucks to be them. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, Bellatrix isn't Bellatrix isn't doing so great. The Malfoys aren't doing so great. S- Snape is, you know, not even doing so so hot right now. So yeah, it's just. Woo. Um, speaking of Marauders, though, we get some more news. Yeah. <laughs> news that we should be really excited. I think as readers, like news we should be thrilled to hear. But it's kind of jarring because we hear it in a really mocking, cruel way. Um, Of course, I'm talking about Tonks and Remus getting married. And especially after the end of Half-Blood Prince, where we have that whole nice moment in the hospital wing where Tonks, like, declares her love. And he's like, no. And everyone's like, stop being stupid. To know that, oh, look, there's, there's a happiness here, right? Here at the end. And instead, we get that delivered in, like... The worst way possible. Yeah. Um, I didn't like hearing it this way because I was worried that this month they were going to die. I was right. (laughs) (laughs) This is not how I like hearing Remus being talked about in Harry Potter. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Tonks being one of my favorite characters. Same. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's also a bit of a surprise, too, because those are Tonks and Remus are characters in the scheme of Harry Potter that have kind of been on the sideline of the narrative for a while. And so to hear them being highlighted at a Death Eater meeting by Voldemort himself is kind of a big deal. Yeah. It's it's one thing to hear him talking about like Harry or, or Dumbledore, you know, people that are big headliners of the series, major characters, but to hear him talk about Tonks and, and Lupin is a bit of a shock because it's just like, uh-oh, like, how do you know about them? Don't talk about them. That's true. It's like, who else do you know yeah. about? Oh no. Like. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's that's a scary one when you when you hear them when you hear them brought up. I saw you know, and I still remember too, um, this is more this is a little more movie versus book stuff, but actually sometimes sometimes I think about how this might have been an interesting approach in the book because, you know, we get farther down in the narrative we get this this whole build up about Bill and Fleur's wedding. Um, and how mm-hmm. that's the big thing. Um, but to me, what would have maybe been interesting is if Rowling had transposed that and actually had Remus and Tonks get married instead. Didn't she plan for that at one point or am I, I don't know. like totally making that up? I don't know if that was ever, um, a official thing that she had in mind, but I remember thinking that. I wish that choice had actually gone forward in the film because I think that would have worked better than mm. than Bill and Fleur because Bill and Fleur are characters that we have almost zero attachment to in the films by Deathly Hallows. And you could even still have them get married at the Burrow because, heck, why not? Like it would still kind of work weirdly. So I'm curious, I'm curious to hear why you think, because I was thinking about the same thing, Mm -hmm. why it was a good choice in the books to have Bill and Fleur's wedding, even though they're obviously more prominent in the books than they're in the movie. I think it's a good choice in the books because it allows you to focus more on 
quote our characters, like the core characters more instead mm. of the people getting married. Uh, right. So like mm. everything happening leading up to the wedding and then during the wedding and then the like dark aftermath. I think in a book in the books that that is like a really good choice. But I think it could be different in the movie. So I was curious to see why you thought maybe it would work a little better in the movie. I think it would definitely work better in the movie because uh Flora and Bill are non characters in the movies. And Mm-hmm. Tonks, uh, like Tonks, is kind of borderline non-character in the movies, but Lupin has character, and we know yeah. him, and he's we've seen him enough since Prisoner that the audience knows who he is. So I think that would have been better as far as as having that connection for the films because I think the films uh, the films didn't function well with the with the non-character showing up and just being like, "Hi, I'm a non-character who's now a plot point," um, like that. That that doesn't work very well. Um, versus in the book, I think you're right, Caleb, that actually in the book it was a good choice not to. I think it still could have worked, but I think it was a better choice not to um, for the exact reason you said, that we can put more focus on our core characters. Though, to be fair, I think by this point, Rowling is treating Tonks and Lupin with as much like Devil May Care as she does... <laughs> Bill and Floor. Yeah. So that Lupin obviously gets his moment uh, a little later with his character breakdown. Um, but uh, he's about as narratively important and him and Tonks in it's funny because I think they're Lupin and Tonks as we are, as we're seeing here are connected in many ways to narrative beats within the story. Like, you know, going to and going to Andromeda's as the safe house and, um, this whole discussion about, you know, the pure blood, half blood marriages and, and werewolves and, um, these two kind of being a representation of everything Voldemort hates. Um, and farther down the line with Lupin coming back to see Harry and, and whatnot. So that, that they're connected through that, but they're, they themselves aren't really that important narratively anymore. Sad to say, maybe it's just my selfish want to have more, Loop and love in the story. <laughs> <laughs> that that could be it too. <laughs> I'm biased, so there's also that. Michael, is this you who has a, a note about another character? Oh, that- yeah. So I remember, uh, like, I forgot this little line that. Then this happens when we're t- when we're witnessing what's happening with Charity Burbage, but. Roland just kind of throws in a line where she said that there was a broad hunched woman with pointed teeth who cackled. Um, and this person is not referenced again, necessarily like in this chapter. And it's, it's, it's weird to me. Like, like when, cause there's only one other like unidentified death eater, I think in this moment. And Rowling even says like another death eater or something like spit on the ground but she identifies that person as just like she, the way she denotes that character, she's just like, it was some death eater who spit on the ground. She doesn't visually describe that death eater versus this one. She gives us a pretty vivid description of this person, but then she doesn't bring them up again. And I looked online to see, to be sure, because I couldn't remember exactly where she's mentioned in other Sections, but there are some descriptions that line up with this being Electo Caro. Mm. Because she has been described in other parts where she's mentioned as like hunched, I believe, and broad, but never with pointed teeth. That 
that description is only here. So when I was reading it this time, I also thought about Electo Caro, but we definitely get her name mentioned at the the end of Half-Blood Prince with the Dumbledore scene, right? On the tower. Yes. Right? He, he yes. names her. So I feel mm-hmm. like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's like a lot of different options here based on like the narrative point of view and things like that. But I feel like Rowling would have named her here, given that we have already met her as a reader. But then again, maybe not since we're at a new point of view perspective here. Yeah, and she's not very important yet. I feel like she becomes important after we hear about her teaching at Hogwarts and then everything that happens at, at during the battle. Um, so at this point, I feel like she's almost reserving the names that she's using for just the very important people. Yeah, that's possible. Um, I mean, she doesn't even she doesn't even start by using Draco's name mm. or any of the Malfoys. I mean, she describes them first when. Snape and Yaxley walk into the room and I mean we we've known Draco forever yeah. like so obviously we know who he is That's but a good point. It, it's like she it's like she's being very specific about when and what names she uses in this context um to almost point out who's who's most important in this moment. I guess that's the why this description stands out, though, because she bothers to give us a really lush physical description, but not give us any other, like, mention of this character. Um, that feels unusual for Rowling, um, especially in this particular situation. It's almost like I remember when I read it, like, this time around, and I was like, that's kind of distracting, actually, that she bothers to give this character, like, she doesn't just say, a Death Eater cackled. Like, one of the Death Eaters cackled, another spit on the floor. She says, a broad, hunched woman with pointed teeth cackled. And I'm like, wow, that's that's actually a pretty hefty description for somebody that we don't get identified. Um, the other reason that, you know, I'm wondering if it's Electo is because Electo becomes the Muggle Studies teacher at Hogwarts. So she's the one who's going to replace Charity mm. and take her place. So, like, that association would also have been... Would also have made sense to, rep- to to present in this chapter for that reason too, but yeah, it's all, it almost feels like like when I read it, I'm just like, did did the editors not catch this or like what what happened? What happened here? Yeah, that one always just stands out to me a little bit. I'm going to say it's Electo just for my own peace of mind. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to another new character who we're only going to know for. This moment, um, we meet Charity Burbage, who is the uh, Muggle Studies professor at Hogwarts. Um, and I forgot <laughs> this this moment. I just don't even know what to say about it because it's just shocking and sickening, and really shows, I think, the seriousness of who Voldemort is. Um, and what's happening here. What I forgot, because I don't think this is mentioned in the movie. Um, the movie does a pretty good job actually of adapting this scene, but the, 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 uh, really what they mainly talk about in the movie is that she's the te- she's the Muggle studies teacher at Hogwarts and that that's, you know, as that's her job, that's, that's very much antithesis to Voldemort's beliefs. But, um, what I forgot was the additional mention in the book that, she wrote an article for the prophet um, that uh-huh. was pro-Muggle. And that 
that mention shocked me and surprised me and kind of made me realize what a like you know in the moments that the few moments that we get to know her that's a pretty that was a pretty bold and daring move miss burbage to do in this particular political climate that was really that was a really brave thing of her to do that so i think it's kind of a little i think it really like her character is already you know in a perilous situation that we sympathize with but i think that really boosts in the few seconds we get to know her that really boosts the admiration for the character really quickly um so that when we lose her like you do you do have a little something from it because what's in, what's interesting about Charity, too, is that she's not a character that's been really foreshadowed because we all we know is that there is a Muggle Studies teacher at Hogwarts and we don't even know the teacher's gender. This is the first time mm-hmm. the teacher has been identified and named, and I think we know that Hermione personally took a class from Charity because Hermione took Muggle Studies in Prisoner of Azkaban, right? Yes. She takes it all throughout, I think. Oh, I think she t- I thought she took it just in Prisoner because she Oh, that's right. She yeah. drops it. Yeah, it's the one she, she drops. She thought it would be fun to learn You're about right. muggles from a wizarding perspective. And then she's like, "Okay, that was fun, but I don't have time for that and I'm a muggle born, so yeah. never mind." <laughs> so, That's right. So that's all like that's all we know about her. But yeah, but speaking of this, there's this line that I caught for the first time um, and it says there was no mistaking the anger and contempt in Voldemort's voice when he's talking about, uh, I think he says before that he, he says like she would have us all mate with muggles or something. He's specifically talking about like wizard muggle relationships. And I just, do you guys think this is a reference to kind of his feelings about where he comes from mm. and the fact that Merope fell in love with Tom Riddle senior is cause that would just be fascinating, especially coming right off half blood Prince where that's such an integral part of that book and understanding um, Voldemort. So it's almost like that's the reason he went after her is she made that specific point and, in the part of him that's still a, like, 15-year-old, it really angered him, you know? Caleb, what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, this is interesting because we don't ever really get any clear moments of Voldemort dealing with his half-blood status. Um, At least none come to mind. I mean, I guess there may be some, like, moments in Chamber of Secrets when we're seeing the diary version of Tom Riddle uh, but definitely nothing from Lord Voldemort himself. So, I mean, this is possible. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I guess I always read it just he went after her because she was apparently a vocal critic. Well, we know she was a vocal critic, and we can maybe infer that it was gaining some clout, and Voldemort wanted to snuff that out as much as he could, particularly since he doesn't have a grip on power right now as he will in, you know, just a few chapters, I guess. Um, Because, you know, when he takes over the ministry, then he can sort of marshal out his, his law, however he wants. But right now it's still, it's, it's still building. And we, we get some conversation about that in this chapter. We're going to talk about Pius Thick in a little bit, but um, I always, yeah, I just read it more 
is him going after her for what she actually her sentiments. But this, this is a good point, and I mean, J.K. Rowling doesn't write anything without reason. So the fact that we we get the highlight of this definitely could point to Voldemort's underlying bitterness about his heritage. Well, and we know too that Voldemort does everything he can to not talk about that because he's he's a mm-hmm. walking talking contradiction of everything he stands for. So, yeah, I mean to do everything. I think there is maybe a subcon I, and I think that's something that is explored in Half-Blood Prince is that Voldemort's there's an element of Voldemort's attack on half-bloods and muggle-borns that's almost a psychosis about his belief about himself and about his parents' failures as individuals, that they were inferior and weak, and that two inferior weak people, you know, let him down um, and failed. Uh, So, you know, let's get rid of them. All of them. That's because he's crazy. So yeah, I do think there's, I think that's, I think that's what Half-Blood Prince is meant to be. It's like a, it's almost like a psychiatric examination of why Voldemort does what he does. Um, so, and what motivates him. So yeah, I think that's, I think that is a part of it. Okay. And then we get to some stuff that I just have questions about because I always have questions. Um, so Yaxley mentions that it, it was extremely difficult for him to put the imperious curse on pious thickness. Why? I feel like when we see <laughs> Harry use this, it's so easy and it's relatively simple. You just walk up behind someone and say Imperio and it just work you know so is it is thickness under a lot of security is is he particular powerful is that why is it difficult for you actually to do this um what's the name of the goblin that harry enchants bogrod bogrod so i think the thing to remember about when harry imperious is bogrod is that bogrod is behaving oddly most of that sequence. Like, they get away with it, but Bogrod's not acting normal when Harry puts the Imperious Curse mm-hmm. on him. And I th- I think there's a level of uh, skill with the Imperious Curse about how well you've performed it so that your target doesn't noticeably change um, when they've been hit with the curse and that they still manage to go on behaving fairly... Normal. You know, n- normal, yeah. And I think that's, I think that is more the accomplishment than it maybe is the achievement of getting the curse on him. It's having done it in a way that nobody at the ministry noticed that anything happened. His thickness is apparently still going on in a way with his daily life at work that's not, uh, that's not causing anyone, in, anyone to see any red flags about what he's doing. Okay. Um, I would guess like, that's what I would guess. I mean, there might be an element too, where thickness is just not like, depending on, you know, where Yaxley is in the ministry versus thickness, they may not, he may not have had as easy access to him too, but I mainly, I think think it's it's a combo of the, the, the access and what you were just describing, Mm -hmm. um, him acting weird. Cause I think the hints that we get Voldemort's comments where I think it's Voldemort that says in the chapter, we need basically more people around him that we can trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It's, it's, it's a, like, and then, yeah, the accomplishment of getting thickness is not necessarily to Voldemort an accomplishment because he hasn't amassed enough people around thickness to also, like, thick, by getting thickness, now you've got to actually use that Imperius Curse to apply it to all the people that you're not putting Imperius Curses on to weed out who in that area around thickness can be convinced to sway over to the other side. So there's still a lot of work to be done, but... And that's all dependent on if the Imperius curse was good enough. Okay. So the reason that people aren't just going around controlling other people is because then I guess you could tell. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I I think like we 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 get some discussion of that from the past, you know, the the, the last time that Voldemort was in power that it was hard to discern who was under an Imperius curse or not. But there are some witches and wizards who seem to have been taught how to figure that out. And, uh, and again, I do think we've had enough narrative examples to understand that the Imperius curse has faults. And uh, another example would be Barty Crouch senior in Goblet of Fire Mm. and that he fights the Imperius curse to some degree and it kind of breaks him mentally, but it does so in a way where he's visibly not, you know, it's not working on him. Okay. So yeah, I think there's different levels to that and it's dependent on the skill of the person who put it on you. All right. I'll take that. (laughs) Uh, The other big question I have from this chapter is are all wands in the books, are they all absolutely unique? Because, we know kind of at the beginning of when she was writing it, she kind of just pictured them as just plain sticks. But later in this book, Bellatrix is supposed to be identified by her wand. And there's this really interesting kind of, uh, kind of symbolism here when Voldemort takes Lucius's wand and basically symbolically like strips him of his masculinity. Mm. So, are they all really that unique that you could look at it and be like, that's so-and-so's wand? Or is that something maybe that got fed in to the, into the books from the movie design? What do you think? I always took this more, and Rowling has built this up so well in the books, that it's not so much the physical appearance of the wand as it is the feel of the wand. Okay. And how wizards kind of socially look at wands there seems to be a social understanding and it's made really clear in this chapter that if you pick up somebody's wand and it's not yours it's a big deal like it's almost a social faux pas in most circles and that by doing what he does Voldemort yeah he is stripping Lucius of his masculinity and he was doing something that would normally be looked be frowned upon but in Voldemort's case, it's a really grand showing of of his power and his and his you know willingness to break a lot of wizarding boundaries to get what he wants. Because um, like the fact that he has kind of scandalized the Death Eaters is saying something by doing this. Because there is a notable reaction around the table when he does this. And then the additional reaction that, you know, the laugh from everybody that Lucius thinks he's going to get Voldemort's wand um, is just as is just as ludicrous to everybody. 
So, and and it, this is also a, you know a reinforcement and a setup for how important one transferring is going to be in this book. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a little subtle hint that oh yeah, this is like this is going to be something to keep an eye on during during this story is the wand business. Okay. <laughs> I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily to the level that the movies did it. Like I like what the movie did. I do too. Because the movie found the movie found its own way to take what had made it what had what it had made unique about the wands by making them visually but see this is this is and this is kind of a perfect segue into the last bit of discussion, right? About mm-hmm. the movie versus the book. But uh, this is w- one of those sections of the movie adaptation that I think is speaks to what makes movie adaptations successful in how they're different from books, because it totally makes sense visually to make all of their wands unique because you cannot convey Rowling's writing about the uniqueness of wands. If you do give them all sticks that look basically the same, uh-huh. like that's, that's not going to work. I mean, it's also not going to sell wands. But, <laughs> um, that's like also marketing. Added bonus. But, yes, yeah. Um, but I think what was brilliantly done as far as how this got transferred to the screen is the moment where Voldemort breaks off mm-hmm. the top of the cane from Lucius's wand, the, from the, the, the snake piece. Because, one, it kind of answers everybody's question about are these like – added on pieces or did they come with the wand? And it is like, yeah, these are things that wizards personalize their wands with um, in the movie. It's a versions. little extra playing that the Malfoys like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Showy. But it also conveys what Rowling was writing, that there is a, like you said, Allison, there is a stripping of masculinity here and a stripping of personality from the wand and that that's important to the story. But it's all of that writing and all of that conveying of like, you know, how, how wizards see that and how that's what's socially acceptable with wands and, and whatnot and how the feel of a wand is in another's hands. You get that all just by seeing Voldemort do that mm-hmm. in, in the visual context. And that's brilliant because movies first and foremost are a visual medium. Here's a little movie, movie 101 for y'all listeners out there. Movies are first and foremost visual before they are before they're before audio. You're because and the reason that film study looks at it that way is because before when movies began, they didn't have sound; they just had visuals. And so, and that's generally the most important aspect of a film versus any other medium is like you know with books. The visuals aren't the first and foremost thing because you, the the reader, are creating the visuals based on what the writer has written. But the the film is providing you a fixed visual message, and so it has to successfully convey its ideas visually and generally in film criticism. That denotes if a film is successfully telling its story, because you could have you could have that scene done in a different way where Lucius and Voldemort do some exposition about why this is, mm-hmm. you know, why this means what it does, but you get it all just in that moment. So I do think that's why that is a great example of, Oh, this is a successful point in the adaptation of the series. 
Yeah, I think that one goes over well. The one that I think I, rereading this chapter in comparison to the movie, is, again, I think the movie went more for the shock factor. This scene in the movie ends um, with, like, Nagini comes towards the audience and right at the, right when Nagini's in your face, mouth opens, right? And then it goes black. Um, but the end of this chapter is almost more disturbing, at least to me. And it's so, again, it started really quiet and it ends really quiet and simply where Voldemort kills Charity Burbage. She lands on the table. Everyone kind of freaks out a little bit. And then he just says, dinner Nagini and that's it and it's like just creepy because we know what's coming you know but we don't see it so you're left as a reader again because of the medium to just picture yourself what's going on and as we know that usually is scarier than uh what anyone else could show you is what you're gonna imagine yourself so I don't know it's just it's a brilliant chapter that just starts quietly and ends quietly and yet leaves us at the beginning of this book going oh crap <laughs> well i think this this also again speaks to another tradition of film and what happens when you transfer something from from book to film this that moment is um kind of uh, f- there there's a few famous moments in movies um, that that is almost in reference to. One of them is um, from a 1903 film called The Great Train Robbery, where the final scene was the leader of the outlaws takes aim and shoots at the audience. He shoots his gun at the audience. And and there's an, I, I don't know if it's the same film or a different film, and that whatever, whichever film I'm thinking of is actually referenced in the film Hugo, um, which is based on the invention of Hugo Cabret and is all about kind of the beginning of film. And uh, the, there's a moment, and this was this was true. This was a true reference that there's a moment in the in the film where a train comes towards the screen, and the audience kind of freaked out and ducked. And the same thing happened with the gunshot in the in the Great Train Robbery in 1903. Like the audience had never experienced a visual like breaking the fourth wall and basically coming out into like they, coming out into the audience. And of course it wasn't going to harm them, but they didn't know that because they were so unfamiliar with the technology. It's kind of similar to, you know, the, the ref, the famous reference that people make about, you know, Orson Welles's radio production of, um, mm-hmm. of the, the war of the worlds, which by the way, listeners was not quite on such a grand scale as people might have you believe. Um, <laughs> But um, the, the, the idea that people were just like, ah, oh, the aliens, they're here. Because that's how <laughs> everyone was terrified for their lives. <laughs> but that's, I think that's what that scene, like the choosing to end that scene that way is very similar to that concept of, you know, taking that action and bringing the audience into it. And, and what happens, you know, is still, let it, to a degree, like you said, Allison, left to the imagination. We don't see Nagini eat charity. Um, mm-hmm. We, but we, as the audience, are in that perspective of almost where Charity's body would be. Um, so it still, I think, conveys the horror of what that situation is, and it's also, I think, important to 
reinforce the visual imagery of Nagini, especially because mm -hmm. she's going to be more important in part two. So we need to remember her. And it, I guess you're right. I guess visually too, it also kind of mirrors what happens with Bethilda Bagshot mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. moment. Yeah. So I guess there's there's that there. Maybe maybe the thing I think too. I'm I'm thinking about it again. Yeah. It, some of it's the music that mm. sets this, and I love the Deathly Hallow score. Like mm -hmm. I love it, mm -hmm. but it really sets the tone, and I think it sets it for a little bit louder than. That's the only word I can think to describe it. Is it, it's louder than the chapter is mm. itself. Well, you know, I think maybe the brilliance of this that you know we haven't brought up yet with the movie translation is that the movie um also chooses to because actually this is not what we start with in the movie what we start with is a montage of what's happening to harry ron and hermione that's right and then we get the title the title drop and then we go into chapter one so what's interesting is actually what we see is a mishmash of chapter three and a piece of information that's dropped in chapter six. Um, mm -hmm. And then we get the stuff with Ron, which is really just Ron at the burrow. And that's not necessarily anything that's been, that's in the book. Um, but Harry's, Harry's piece is from chapter three and Hermione's piece is that moment that she mentions chapter six brought to life. Um, mm -hmm. And what's, Really, what's always been fascinating to me about that is, and really speaks to a lot of, you know, the, you can get into a whole discussion about this, but, you know, Cloves, as we know, loved Hermione. She was his favorite character. And I think that's very clear in the opening because that sequence, in that sequence, in that montage sequence, Hermione's is the, is the, section with the most emotional weight and it's the one that the sequence ends with because it mm -hmm. ends with her walking out onto her home street and leaving and i think it's it's like it's beautifully done and it's shocking and it's it's tragic um and i think it conveys just the right tone and i think like you were saying allison as far as the music goes the music in that moment while it's kind of quick tempoed it's actually quiet and i think it is very quiet yeah and it lets the scene. Yeah, if you listen to just the score, it actually takes a while for you to mm -hmm. hear yeah. most of that music. You know, it it takes like 30 seconds or something for you to, unless you've got it like blasting, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to hear the beginning of that uh, Obliviate track. Yeah. Yeah. And it has these beautiful emotional swells. Yeah. And then it dies away. And I... Yeah, and what's 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 worth noting about that scene too is that that's not originally how it was going to be. I think there was an intention that the part with Snape was and and Voldemort and Malfoy Manor was going to start the movie because they filmed the Dursleys exit in full. And so there I don't think necessarily was an originally a plan to do the montage that way and maybe in a way feels like why ron's section of the montage is kind of tacked on because nothing happens in his section that's true ron doesn't show up in this book no <laughs> so it's it's kind of like fit in there because we need to have all all three of them in the status of all three of them but i do think like there's an element of importance i guess the way that ron's section works is that it's showing that he's still at home and what's notable is that the only audio you hear from ron's section is his mother calling him in for dinner 
Uh-huh. And that will tie into Ron's level of comfort on the trip and how frustrated he gets. So there's maybe that might have been the intention with that connection by putting that in there was how difficult this trip is going to be for Ron because he's still the one who's living a comfortable home life out of the three of them. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it was amazingly done, especially because while the three of them are carrying the movie beautifully, I think like the Deathly Hallows part one is, I think one of the prime examples of the three of them and their acting at its peak Mm -hmm. because they are carrying the movie because, because Cloves favors Hermione I do think that in many ways, Deathly Hallows Part 1, and you, you know, listeners, feel free to contend with me on this in the comments, but I think Deathly Hallows Part 1 is as much Hermione's film as it is Harry's. Yeah. And I think visually we're signaled to take it that way. So that's, I think that's why that opening is so, is so different because he didn't need to do, he didn't need to show us that scene of Hermione you know, erasing her parents' memories. He didn't need to do that. Um, he could have just had it mentioned down the line like he does. Or um, not even at all. It could have, I mean, that's certainly something that could have been cut altogether. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because if we remember famously around Goblet of Fire time, people, once Goblet of Fire came out, people were asking, like, why didn't SPEW show up? Because that's such a big thing. And da- David Heyman famously said, because it was a Hermione issue. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> so Great stuff. it's not like, yeah, yeah. So it's not like we're not used to sideline plots getting cut. And that mm-hmm. could have easily been something that had been cut. But I think um, Cloves brilliantly saw the emotional weight of that. Um, but as far as the rest of the adaptation of the scene, I think it's done really, really well. It's, 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 it's shorthanded to some degree, but it's done. It's, it, in a, it's done in that way where it's shorthanded successfully. Like, I think it's, it reminds me in some ways of the graveyard scene from Goblet of Fire, which is also shorthanded, but done in a way that really evokes the book correctly, the tone and the, and the feel and, you know, the, you even see, I think in the picture in picture commentary, which is really fun to watch listeners. If you haven't ever experienced that, especially cause Jason Isaacs is a hoot, like watching, watching Jason Isaacs talk about playing Lucius Malfoy is quite possibly one of the most joyous experiences for behind the scenes filmmaking, because he just loves that character so much. <laughs> and he gets to that part, like you get to that part, and he's just like, "Ah, oh, we're seeing Lucius here, and he's so battered and broken. He's a broken man. Like he's just so <laughs> into it. Um, like it's really it, he gets so excited about Lucius. Yeah, in the last film. yeah. It's, like- it's, it's fun how a character who has very little screen time, because Isaac's is so passionate about him, he makes Lucius feel like he's there more than he is. Uh huh. He does a really phenomenal job with Lucius and he's it's almost like to the level of being like he's he's dangerously riding the level of camp with his portrayal of Lucius <laughs> because he does he, he takes it over the top but he does it so well that it that it works because he's just so passionate about that character but yeah I think it's I think the kind of catatonic state of the Malfoys is done really well visually mm-hmm. How they did how they did Draco's hair and makeup, man, mm. for that scene is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. 
He looks yeah. so woebegone and yeah. so stressed so out. So sallow. Even yeah. even more so than he did in Half-Blood Prince. Like, yeah. Yeah. Man. You're going yeah. through it. <laughs> and it's it's another one of the rare scenes cuz I I have, you know, mixed feelings about Ray Fiennes. Like he and I think uh, Ray Fiennes in many ways he's not Book Voldemort. No. And I think the closest he got to Book Voldemort was Goblet of Fire. He was kind of nailing it there. Um, and then something happened, and now talk about camp. Voldemort, Voldemort goes into yeah, camp territory pretty quick. This is probably my least favorite scene of his, actually, or one of them, mm-hmm. with Ray Fiennes as Voldemort. It's just, I don't know, is it the voice? Is it, the, I just can't. You know what I think? There's just something about it where I'm like, meh. What's interesting to me about Voldemort as far as how we as U.S. readers are presented to uh, with him visually is that Mary Grand Prix draws him in a way where she hides his face with his hood. Oh, uh, yeah. So she, Most of the time. Yeah. she's practice, She practices an, a, another technique that Rowling frequently uses and one that you mentioned, Allison, about how what the audience can imagine is scarier than what you can portray. Yeah. Um, Mary Grand Prix does that a lot with Voldemort. Um, the only time she started to really properly fully reveal Voldemort's face was is in artwork that's not in the books. It's in like stuff she uh-huh. did for merchandise. Um, and it's it is kind of shocking to see her portrayal of Voldemort. He's terrifying in her drawings. <laughs> but I think she does like I think visually because even though we do get a, a visual description of him from from Rowling, I think like I know I always read him kind of with basically the way she draws him on the cover of Deathly Hallows, which is that you can pretty much only see his eyes and some of his nose, but he has his mm-hmm. hood up all the time in my head. Um, so having him fully visually exposed and with combined with finds his very over the top portrayal. Um, I think that's what makes it kind of jarring for me as as kind of some of the choices he made. I don't know if I've seen these before. Oh, are you looking at the drawings that she did? Yeah, I I don't think I've ever seen his... His full face. Yeah. (laughs) Been left in shock. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) So... So yeah, I think I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily it. I mean, I think the other piece is that Ray Fiennes is making some perf- performance choices that are drastically different from what Rowling wrote. Mm-hmm. He's he makes Voldemort his own. Um, it's just not it, it's not quite what she wrote. So I think that's sometimes what throws throws people off with his with his approach. I personally think he does fine in this scene. Um, I'm. I don't. I'm not really a fan of how he where he takes Voldemort in part two. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, 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 especially with the yeah, famous yeah. But um, and then the the other thing to note, listeners, is just if you haven't really kind of looked into it, is the astonishing special effects that went into Charity Burbage. For that oh scene. gosh, yeah! Like it's amazing. It's a they, mannequin. Yeah, it's a it's a part of it. Basically, like a living, breathing mannequin for a pretty good majority of it. Because they, what's so great about the Potter films throughout their whole run, and really something that we just don't see in movies anymore. And 
why we should celebrate the Potter films, I think, as pieces of art. Is there some of the last films that still managed, still were determined to use as many practical effects as they could yeah. all the way through the end? Because you didn't have to have a mannequin body floating above there. Like, you know, we, you could have just put a tennis ball there as kind of the eyeline for the actors. But they went to the trouble of making a life-sized mannequin that could move and twitch. Um, yeah. For the actors to look at. And it's just how amazing that the movie just goes, the movie makers went that extra mile to give the actors that sense of realism for what they were doing. <laughs> that mannequin used to be hanging right kind of when you walked into the creature shop at the studio tour. I don't know if it is anymore because they've been rearranging a whole bunch of stuff. But it was like just hanging in a corner. That's terrifying. <laughs> and if you didn't like look up necessarily and look at everything you could miss it mm. but if you did you were just like that's okay okay <laughs> <laughs> there it is it's um terrifying <laughs> interestingly enough too this is the scene that's set up in the studio tour when they have their little area that is the malfoy manor um mm. is this table set with the death eaters and Fun fact, though, Nagini is totally CGI in the movie. So they built the Nagini model that's on the table in that setup. Um, oh, that's cool. So there's just this model that they made specifically for that setup because in the movie, she's completely CGI. Yeah. Um, Shout out, too, for the actor who played Yaxley because I liked him. He's a good pick. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he makes Yaxley distinct considering that Yaxley is just showing up right now. Um, but I, I also like the choice too, that, um, cause that's change, um, visually from the book that I like that Snape walks in alone for the movie. I think it works great in the book that he walks in with Yaxley because it's a great way. It's a good way to introduce Yaxley and have somebody for Snape to bounce off of so that we get how in control Snape is of the situation. But I like visually in the movie that it's just Snape because Snape's the only character we would have an emotional connection with. And it also signifies yeah. visually what Snape is going to represent in the series because this is a, this is the first out of two times that Snape is going to open the movie with a single sh with a with a shot of him alone, which I think does a good job of conveying kind of the audience's confusion about him. If he's just there alone, you know, how how do we know what side he's on, I guess? Um, and Alan Rickman does a great job with his facial expressions in these two movies to convey what he can. Yeah, I just, I like, because the, the other moment that I think a lot of people point out in that scene um, is, like, a slight difference from the book is when Charity... Uh, begs Snape to help her. And mm -hmm. in the book, Snape is completely impassive. Like, he does not show any sign of recognition or that he cares. But in the movie, he just lets a tiny little bit slip. And it's mostly for the audience's sake that he does. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, again, that's tying to what's going to happen in The Prince's Tale. Because we find out in Prince's Tale, he's got that line where... I think it's Dumbledore. Someone asks him, well, how many people have you seen die? And he's like, only the ones I can't save. Mm. And I feel like it's almost getting that line across 
it's it's early in the movie, yes, but yeah. I think to some extent the movies were assuming people had read the books, so they knew that what, what Snape was doing there. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I yeah, I, especially by that point, I do think it. I I think it is important to visually convey it somehow, and it's so minute on Rickman's part. He does a good job of doing it in a way where theoretically, if Voldemort saw him, he wouldn't have noticed. But it's yeah, it's done very well to just like you said, Allison, convey that point because we're not going to really hear that from Snape in in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. So it has to be done visually because that's the preferred way to do it when you translate it to the screen. So, yeah, overall, I think this is a one of the more successful chapter adaptations. Yeah, I agree. In, yeah, in I would movies. agree with that. Deathly Hallows Part 1 overall, I think, is a really successful adaptation. Yay, Deathly yeah. Hallows Part 1. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying, Caleb? No, I was agreeing. I think, yeah, the De- Deathly Hallows 1 is probably my favorite adaptation. Um, mm. Like, speaking mm-hmm. strictly about how it's adapted from uh, book to movie. Not necessarily the closest, because I think, like, probably the earlier movies are that would win that but as far as what i enjoy as far as being adapted from the books i think this is the one and it starts off really well um even though like we mentioned it doesn't start off with this chapter in the movie we get the the uh, montage of the the trio but still this scene is done really well in the movie i think yeah i think that's something that a lot of potter fans have picked up over the years is that adaptation isn't necessarily just like straight up just like Look, I copied the book yeah. because that's what Sorcerers and Chambers are. And a lot of people are like, those movies are cute but boring. And I, like, I, I think that's kind of the general sentiment in the fandom is that people enjoyed the first two films mostly for nostalgic reasons. But exactly. they're not really great filmmaking. And I think that's <laughs> and that's a that's a hard thing for people to recognize because a lot of people who haven't studied film don't necessarily realize that they're that's what they're that's why they don't like the first two films that way. Deathly Hallows Part 1, I think, is a fabulous example, as we just discussed, of what, like, why an adaptation can succeed while still making changes, but still managing to successfully convey written ideas visually in ways that aren't necessarily exactly how they were written in the book, but still capture that concept. And I think Deathly Hallows overall Part 1 does that really, really well. Most definitely. The end. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. There we go. <laughs> so that's Deathly Hallows, huh? Yeah, and that's the last of our seventh anniversary episodes. Aw, that was fun. That's a little weird. Yeah, right. Yeah, I liked doing that though. That was that's a that was a fun, especially to kind of look at how all these first chapters compare to each other. Like that was, yeah. I think the most interesting thing about how Rowling's style evolved and changed and, and what remained the same through, I think something that you could probably say is still there from Sorcerer's Stone is just the rich descriptive nature of her writing. Cause we've come a long way from her Sorcerer's Stone days and Chamber of Secrets days of like, you know, summarizing, there's none of that here. <laughs> none at all. 
but like we're not hearing for the millionth time that James and Lily didn't <laughs> indeed die in a car crash. They died. Because <laughs> Harry Potter was an unusual boy, <laughs> and he's a wizard. Yeah. Did you know that? Nah, by this we're going point? to dinner with the Death Eaters. Forget all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's dinner with the Death Eaters. It's a refreshing. Sounds like a band. It's a refreshing uh, uh, change. It's it's cool to see how her writing did evolve and you know I, I, again i and i've said this before too is always a good reminder that for all the brilliance we attribute to rolling and how much we put her on a pedestal for her just magic ability to just write i think it's always too a good reminder looking at the books this way and looking at the chapters this way to kind of see like yeah she's brilliant but like any writer she evolved and she learned from her past writing and she changed mm-hmm. things like she while she is brilliant and while she crafts a story in an incredible way and did that with Harry Potter. It's just a good reminder that, yes, she is human and she she encountered many of the same issues in her writing that all writers encounter and that oh, yeah. her writing got better over time. I think that's refreshing because I think a lot of times not only does the fandom forget that, but I think the marketing of rolling by Warner Brothers wants us to forget that <laughs> almost. Yes. But I think that's what makes her a more incredible person, really, is not that she's it's not that she churned out this amazing story and it just was perfect. But you know, and that she can that she's can say whether she, you know, is true or not, that she's like, Yeah, I planned Nagini to be a woman twenty years ago. Like uh, that doesn't impress me. Like hearing that doesn't impress me. Hearing her struggles and seeing the brilliant results of her personal struggles and how she took that and applied it to these beautiful books. I think that's what's the true success of Rowling. And I really love that she might've had these story ideas and we know she had a lot of these story ideas from the very beginning, but I love seeing the, uh, the craft mm-hmm. improved too. You know, I, I mean, I talk about all the time how much I just love the style and the craft of Deathly Hallows. And I think story elements don't necessarily change from the first book to the last book, but I think her execution of getting those story elements across really built and it it just became gorgeous. I mean... Sometimes you read parts of Philosopher's Stone and you're like, that's a little bit of clunky writing, but we're so involved in the story. But by the time you get to Deathly Hallows, I mean, there are paragraphs that it's like, this is just poetry on a page. Like, it's gorgeous. It's wonderful. Um, But she's still getting that same excitement of the story across, you know? It's fun for me, too, with Deathly Hallows because Deathly Hallows is obviously is the one that I've read the least amount of times because, you know, when, when we were waiting for the books, I would just, and because I was reading them to Charlie, I would just cycle through them. And so when we'd, when mm-hmm. we'd finish with whatever book was out, I would just go back and start it again with him. So we read, like, I've read the first four, like a lot. Um, <laughs> and then order through Hallows, I hadn't read as much and then of course after overtime order and half blood increased a little bit but hallows is the one i have reread the least and so it tends to be the one when i dive back into it that there's a lot of details i've forgotten and a lot of stuff that feels still feels really fresh and in addition to that because the movies 
and they, the movies do this with every one of the books, but the movies sometimes make you forget some of the little details or they make you rearrange things mm-hmm. in your head. And sometimes you forget just the sheer brilliance of the tiny little things that Rowling sprinkled into the writing that would become important later. Or just like you said, Allison, the absolute poetry of her writing and watching it evolve through the series. So it's fun to go back into these chapters this way. And I thought that was, that was a funny reexamination of, 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 uh, Harry Potter, kind of like a mini, mini Alohomora experience for these last (laughs) seven episodes. Yeah. So, uh, we of course want to thank Caleb for coming back and joining us, uh, on this mini Alohomora experience, especially, being one of the original hosts. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Caleb. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. I mean, I think this idea, as you were just saying, Michael, was just a really good one to, um, one, like celebrate what this show has been able to to do for seven years and you guys are doing just such a great job of keeping it going. Um, but also just to remember that there's always so much more to dive into and like this abbreviated uh, reread format of going through each of the first chapters is such a cool way of uh, just journeying through the books. And it's been really enjoyable for me as a listener to listen to the first six books and then join for this one, which is my favorite book. So I was so excited to get to, to join for this chapter. So thanks for having me. It was uh, it was a really fun, fun discussion. And Speaking of more things to dive into, our next topic, guys, we're going back to topics. Oh my gosh, this is weird. Um, will be someone who was very important in this chapter, but we actually didn't talk about very much. So our next topic will be Draco Malfoy. Good. We'll have plenty more opportunities to talk about him then. His father will hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's one. That's a topic that the listeners have been requesting in mass. That's been one that's been on the dock for a while. So get hype, listeners. That one's, <laughs> that one's been one you've been waiting for. And actually, speaking of you know your requests and your participation, listeners, if you want to know how to be on the show, visit our website, alohomorepodcast.com, and choose the Be on the Show tab. Follow those instructions on the page and send us your audition to for a chance to be on the show. Because now that we're done with that seven-year anniversary business, we are looking for guests again. <laughs> For this for episodes um and if you don't want to necessarily be on the show you can also visit the topic submit page to tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about if you're interested in being on that topic you can also let us know but even if you're not interested in being on the show there are still ways to uh, let us know what you're interested in hearing us discuss next not only topics but also chapters from the, from the series uh you just if you if you want to be on the show though you just need a microphone and a pair of headphones. If you're chosen to guest, we will walk you through the rest of the process, including downloading recording software and making sure that your test recordings are smooth. So we do vet you for that. And if your recording quality isn't up to a certain level, we're, we'll ask you to kind of go back and re-examine that. But we definitely will do our best to get you on the show. And if you just want to talk with us at some point, or our social media team has been doing some great stuff at putting some questions relating to episodes out so you can start the discussion before you even hear the episode, you can contact us on Twitter and Instagram at MN, on Facebook at facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore, at our lovely website, alohomorapodcast.com. And we also have alohomora.mugglenet.com again, right? Yes, we do. Yes. Uh, YouTube at youtube.com slash alohomorapodcast.com. 
Our email is alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. And send emails because it comes back to you as a Dumbledore. So you can feel like Dumbledore's dropping you an owl <laughs> in your email. Um, <laughs> and that's how you can get in contact with us. And one more reminder to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash alohomora. And once again, thank you to our Patreon sponsor for this episode, Deanna Abrish. Thank you so much, Deanna, for sponsoring this episode. And also transcribing for us. We appreciate that as well. And you listeners can become a sponsor for as low as $1 a month. Be sure to check out our higher tiers for things like access to Dumbledore's office, t-shirts, decals, all kinds of fun stuff. Um, And you can find that again at patreon.com slash alohomora. But for now, that is a wrap, not only on uh, Deathly Hallows for now, but also on our seven-year anniversary. Thank you for joining us for our seven, yeah, seven years. That's that's a long time. That's crazy. Thank you for joining us for that very special number, seven years, uh, Alohomora listeners. I'm Michael. I'm Allison. Thank you for listening to episode 272 of Alohomora. Open. The Dumbledore. the world as friends do the seas they live in one another still for they must needs be present that love and live in that which is omnipresent in this divine glass they see face to face and their converse is free as well as pure this is the comfort of friends that though they may be said to die yet their friendship and society are in the best sense Ever present because immortal. Oh, the torment bred in the race. The grinding scream of death And the stroke that hits the vein The hemorrhage none can staunch The grief, the curse no man can bear But there is a cure in the house And not outside it, no Not from others, but from them Their bloody strife We sing to you, dark gods beneath the earth. Now hear, you blissful powers underground. Answer the call, 
Send help. Bless the children. Give them triumph now. This is Leah or Hufflepuff Skeen. I haven't been commenting in a while, but I'm really glad to be back. And I had a bit of a comment slash question for the upcoming chapter discussion, chapter one of Deathly Hallows. And really it's concerning Charity Burbage and how oh so awful it is to be witness to her murder in this chapter. But I've been wondering, is she there and is the sort of the extravaganza of her torture, I suppose, in Voldemort's mind, is it a test for Snape? Is it in Voldemort's view, is this a way to see what Snape's reaction will be to this person who he supposedly is friends, as she says, um, and to really see whether he's on their side or not, and whether he's going to try to save her or flinch or something. I just, I've always seen this as, um, more than anything, Voldemort getting his kicks off by killing someone, but also looking for Snape's reaction. Love to hear your thoughts. Hi, Mora. This is Stephanie. I have a crazy theory. I found of it when I heard Michael talk about how Hermione told Harry to remember Dumbledore as he was and not spend all of his time trying to find out the truth about him. Do you think that it is possible that by this time Hermione has already caught on to Dumbledore's plan that Harry is a horcrux and has to die and that she's trying to keep him from finding out the truth just yet? I know it's a crazy thought, but I would love to hear what you guys think. Thanks. Hi, Mora. I'm Badgermole Butterbeer on the main site, and I wanted to take a moment to talk about why Voldy and the DEs captured Hagrid. It makes strategic sense to keep one prisoner that personally knew Harry and could positively identify him to Harry's supporters. Voldemort needed total surrender from his enemies, and this would have been a mighty step in that direction. Hagrid's testimony that Harry was indeed dead caused those at Hogwarts to take it as fact instead of having hopeful naysayers believing it to be a hoax or a trick. This clever strategy would have squashed those hopes immediately. I think it likely that Voldemort would have sent the Acromantulas to capture his old schoolmate and bring him to the clearing in preparation for Harry's inevitable reappearance. Hi, this is Eileen Prince slash Jones. I had a question about the Fallen Warrior chapter. Um, While in the burrow, Harry thinks back to when Hagrid accidentally gave away important information about Fluffy in the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, So my question is, are we supposed to think that Hagrid was the one who potentially gave Snape the actual date of Harry's departure? We know that Snape got the date from... Dumbledore, but at this point in the book, we don't know that yet. So are we supposed to think it's Hagrid? Um, What were anybody else's theories on who the leak was at this point in the book? Um, I can't remember myself what I thought, so I was interested to see what anybody else's theory was at this point. Thanks. Hi, Alohomora. This is Stephanie. In Chapter 5, we see Harry try to explain to everyone that his wand acted on its own accord to fend off Voldemort, and no one believes him. Hermione thinks that he did magic without meaning to, and Arthur thinks that Harry was under so much stress that he was able to produce magic that he never dreamt of. But what I want to know is how come no one believes Harry after all this time? 
after all he's been through and after all the people that have been seeing that he actually has been right, how is this still happening? At first, I thought Harry was being a little melodramatic in this series, but now after rereading it and really seeing what Harry has to deal with, I would have acted the same way. Why does no one believe Harry? Ever? Thanks. Love to hear your thoughts.